0: Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Bookshambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version, with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on.
1: Hello and welcome to Bookshambles. Producer Trent here. <coughs> We will start, as we often do, by thanking our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe, which means you get extra extended episodes each and every week, plus lots of other goodies, including bonus series and ticket giveaways and all sorts of stuff coming up as well. Remember that Nine Lessons for Spring is coming up as well. These are the shows we had to postpone from December last year, thanks to Omicron. 15th and 16th of April at King's Place, hosted by Robin, two nights of science and music and comedy for charity. Helen Chersky, Lucy Green, Matt Parker. Beck Hill, Neera Chamberlain, lots more. Make sure you get your tickets for those at cosmicshambles.com slash 9lessons. And now on today's episode, our guest is Dr. Richard Firth here whose book, The Human History of Emotions, has just come out. Also, fun fact, Richard and his wife, who is a full-time musician, composed and wrote the theme music for... Cosmic Shambles and Book Shambles, so the music that you hear at the start of every episode of Book Shambles every week, the the full jazz funky version and the acoustic version, is thanks to our guest today, but he's also, in his uh, day-to-day life, a research historian and author, and he's on the podcast today to chat about his new book, and to let you know as well, Robin was running a couple of minutes late when we had to start recording this episode, so he pops into the episode a few minutes in. And so I hand you over to our host for today, Dr. Helen Chersky. Hope you enjoy.
2: Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, which is starting today with the fantastic uh, news that neither Robin or Josie is here. Robin's meant to be here. We've lost him. Uh, Trent, Producer Trent has gone looking for him. But in the meantime, we have a fabulous guest and we're going to get started. So this week, our guest is uh, Richard Firth Godber here, um, who has written a fabulous book that we're going to be talking about called A Human History of Emotion, uh, which opens many, many doors. But first of all, Richard, how are you?
3: I- I'm great um, at the moment. Um, every car is going behind me, so apologize for that. There's a diversion. But other than that, I'm fine. How are you?
2: Very good. Yes, I'm very well, apart from having lost my co-host. Um, <laughs> yes,
3: apart from that.
2: So- <laughs> Um, anyway right so this it's a great um what I thought I mean what's interesting about this book for me are the many interesting things is that the cover sort of says everything but it doesn't actually tell you what's inside because it changes all your ideas <laughs> about yeah. what emotion actually is so perhaps perhaps let's start there just in the you know you I think you could flick through this book you could pick it up and kind of flick through it not look at the cover and you might not actually identify that it was about what we call emotion so perhaps that's a good place to start why is that
3: oh yes um because emotion is a is a box that we invented really it's a nice scientific thing where we said these kinds of feelings we're going to put inside this box Um, and the other feelings things like hunger and coldness and all that we're gonna not put inside this box. And so history has had different boxes for different sets of feelings. You know, some places would have had uh, hunger as a type of desire and and others would have had, if you like, physical pain. as very similar to emotional pain, whereas we see them as different things because, well, they don't actually behave that differently, really, when it comes down to it. But we see them as different because we've got a different thing. Um, So emotions are as much about what we call them and how we talk about them as they are what we feel. And then, and that changes over time, which is part of what we do as historians of emotion.
2: It does fit. I mean, that is a great thing, anyway. a Historian of emotion. <laughs> it does <laughs> it makes it sound like you, you spend your time watching lots of very weepy films, actually early 1930s films or something. But I'm sure there's more. Well, it's a big field. I mean, there's are there lots of you studying this.
3: There are quite a lot of us. We 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 kind of took off in the early noughties, just after 9-11. Coincidence, I don't know, but um, some of us don't think so. Um, we've been around since the 80s, really, but um, the the, 90, the noughties is when we ended up with a, three centres for the history of emotion. One in the UK that I'm part of, one in Berlin, and one in Australia. The Australian one's enormous, absolutely huge. It's across about four different universities. Um And uh, yeah, it's building up all the time, even the point where non historians of emotion will have it in their papers a little bit about (laughs) the feelings and stuff, um, because they don't want to get as angry, I guess.
2: (laughs) Oh well, I shan't ask what you've done in the past. I, it sounds like historians of emotion know very well how to uh, use their emotions to persuade other people they've done the wrong thing. We will yes, come on yes. to uh, manipulation, <laughs> but it strikes me that early on, I mean, so you know, you start way back. Everything starts with the ancient Greeks. It seems fundamentally yes, so But but it, it's almost philosophy. It's like it's humans. A lot of the ideas you talk about, humans like searching for label. Like what do? How do we think? What do we do with this? How do we think about it? And it's almost at the beginning of. a a search for the, you know, how to be human. Is that fair?
3: Yeah, it is. I mean, the very earliest of the Plato stuff, as usual, um, the Plato's of it, that is what he's doing. He didn't ever write a, this is a book about emotion, about feelings, about pathé, as they would have called it. What he did is he wrote about them in other books, talking about other things. So he talks about it quite a lot in The Republic, and he talks about it quite a lot in Timaeus and other things. And you have to pull them out and go, what's he talking about here? What's he on about? And then work out his structure. Um, so, yeah, they were deep parts of the philosophy um, that's uh, and underpinned a lot of a lot of philosophy surprising amounts have underpinned by feelings um, ever since the Greeks, but again, I feel the one that went, hang on, how come nobody mentions that Thomas Hobbes' this entire Leviathan starts with this huge chunk going, this is what feelings are, you know, that kind of thing, and Plato's sort of the same.
2: Uh, well, we have four podcast listeners. Robin Ince, a Robin Yay. Ince, has just appeared. How are Sorry, you? Sorry, I've
0: been in the middle of uh, we're doing a show about quantum information and the information paradox on Monkey Cage, and uh, surprisingly, that uh, overran, uh, <laughs> which is why I'm late. So the, this this the frippery of emotion compared to the fact that we're all holograms. Uh, you know, the, the, these things, emotion suddenly becomes for, for nothing now. I mean, it's it's a while ago since I I read your book because I read it in 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 proof form and it is uh, I mean it is something that seems to drive on a lot of your a lot of the things that you put out on social media as well is about empathy and and that that it's it's an is that one of the things and you might have covered this already, Helen, but it's interesting that that basically that idea that very often we manage well we live in a strange world where we we are are very good at disconnecting from everyone else's emotional reaction while at the same time heightening our own emotional reaction you know there are quite a few people that you see and certainly within um i I would say is that kind of you know trumpian nature of i think you'll find the real victim here is me yeah and many of the the worst bullies who are now very high profile people are those people who feel the tiniest pinprick against themselves yeah. while smashing everything else with a sledgehammer
3: yeah um yes that is um it is something i've noticed that there is an increasing thin skinnedness about certain people. And they're also the ones that call everyone else thin skinned all the time as well. Everyone else is a snowflake, but don't you dare criticize me or I'll go and cry. Um, Seems to be a common thing. Um, There is a colleague of mine, Jan Plamber, who thinks that all kicked off in 9-11, that we all got a bit sensitive because of what happened there and the term it, be, emotions became a big part of the discourse. Now I go back to Star Trek the Next Generation and say there was a counselor that was a third in command on that ship. A psychiatrist was third in command. So we we're a bit feely in the late eighties, I'd argue. Um, but yeah, it's, we, it's an emotional age, a lot of my colleagues think, more than before. People would talk and write about emotions, but then they'd talk about how you shouldn't have them or how you should control them. And now we just, nope, let's be emotional. And don't you dare criticise me when I am.
2: Well, I've um, always wondered whether it's a, it's a consequence. And obviously, emotions yeah. are valid things, but they're also very useful in some other ways because no one can tell you what you feel. What you yeah. feel is what you say, and you can't criticise. You can't. You know, you can't pick apart someone's logical argument for feeling like something. If they say I feel this, everyone else has to accept it. And there's also yeah. something there which is a uh, no one can question your emotion. But they can question lots of other things. <laughs> yes,
3: um, although often people do uh, question people's emotion. Uh, increasingly so, at the moment. Um, it's it is a kind of a it's like saying questioning whether you like chocolate or not. If you say you don't like it, why should anybody disbelieve you? if you say you're sad then you're sad and it's kind of strange because there are fringes of emotions extreme emotions emotional health issues where there's a blurred line between somebody who is for example feeling sad and somebody who is actually depressed and it's hard to know you know it's better to take it at face value because what's the harm it's saying okay you're depressed well let's help but yeah it's it's um It is very much a close thing. One of the issues with the history of emotion, we cannot know how these people felt. We've just got to assume how they say they felt is how they felt. Um, And there's just like any other history, there's a bit of reading between the lines going on, you know, um, quite a bit. But uh, yeah, it is it is hard to penetrate.
0: Well, also, you talk about this being an emotional age, but I suppose that, you know, that Victorian age as well, where people would have their pipettes at the side of the desk to drop little pieces of water on the ink to make it look as if they'd cried while writing letters. So I I think there's probably a recurrence of, I I mean, sometimes we are in a danger, aren't we, of, of, of imagining... Changes of consciousness that are actually merely that we are experiencing it now and therefore are in it. And as you said, everything else becomes, once something becomes historical, we somehow turn the person of the 15th century, we somehow turn the person of the second century, we somehow turn the, the Greek philosopher into someone who was experience and then one way of course they are experiencing the world differently because of the information you have about the world but actually emotionally yeah. perhaps not experiencing the world and that, like there was a I'm I'm always fascinated by that idea that um parents of the 19th century were more distant from their children mm. because of the expectation that you would lose your children yeah um and yet there's also an enormous you know, if you look at the writing of Charles Darwin and Emma yeah. Darwin then that's not true at all
3: yeah, and there are um there are lots of artifacts from um, for example, um homes where people's parents have died on the other way around, where they the things that the children will treasure a lot. Um, there'll be things that they'll keep from their from their parents and things that they'll keep from their, their dead children, these artifacts that they'll treasure and they'll have pictures and they'll have artwork and all sorts of things that suggest that, you know, maybe they were a bit closer. They just were upset a lot more often um, and so kind of acted stoically or wrote stoically that's kind of the thing you've got to get through you know it's things like the civil war i mentioned Hobbes earlier that thomas Hobbes's first third of the leviathan is this is what feelings are well that's because he was stuck in france his country was in the middle of a terrible war and he was feeling kind of bad about it and thought that this was all about people getting angry and upset and killing each other so how do we stop it so yeah that was very war is kind of emotional we may be gathering at the moment as much as it is logical i've said before no one starts uh no one really starts a war because they get a logic table and decide it's a good idea very often um
2: this goes right back doesn't it because you do say i mean one of the things you say quite early on in the book is is i'm probably i'm paraphrasing but is that (laughs) um um people were interested in what we now call emotions because it it influenced you to do things it changed what you did it wasn't about oh i feel this it was like if you're angry then you will do this it was a much more functional relationship
3: yeah that's that's a kind of a a modern change with the modern idea of emotions that a positive emotion is something that feels good and a negative emotion is that something that feels bad um whereas before there's this idea of the ordinate and inordinate passions where ordinate ones were ones that basically took you closer to god took you to the to heaven you use them in the right way but there's an evolutionary element the old if you fear the bush uh, has a bear in it and run away the bear doesn't eat you fear is good in that instance fearing falling off a cliff is not a bad thing um and then if you use the same emotions if you lo- use love for example love of wealth to become rich and treat everybody badly and forget about your duties love is a bad emotion that you shouldn't be having in that way um and more recently probably because um psychologists and science like to group things differently we've got this idea of positive feelings and negative feelings although again hobbes did that um and it's um not necessarily right it leads to things i don't like like toxic positivity like you should only ever feel positive at all times which is obviously not the case sometimes you need to be feeling sad is fine it's okay you know um but yeah it's uh a big change and it's it's yeah it's a fairly recent one i actually want to pinpoint exactly when it became the norm because Hobbes talked about it and there's a, a greek bloke as always who talks about it but it was sort of a that's a weird idea for emotions and then more recently sometime in the late 19th century early 20th century they started this positive negative thing but It's more incremental than there's a moment. We historians like a moment, unfortunately, because we can write about them.
2: (laughs) But one of the most interesting things to that, I thought, was that it was the concept, we don't necessarily talk about shame as an emotion Mm. very much. And actually, as you set out, like, shame shame is at the root of a lot of things, possibly the most powerful of all of them. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: It can be powerful, yeah. Shame is... It's, a, it's slightly different in different cultures, as many emotions are, um, but it does seem to, it's a, an emotion that can, it's a social emotion that when you feel it, you feel it because of a pressure from society around you to behave in a certain way. Um, there's something called emotional regimes, which are in the book, which is the idea that you behave emotionally in a certain way as set by your culture. And kind of that's governed by shame and sometimes disgust and a couple of other moral emotions. But shame in some cultures, very powerfully, Japan and China in particular, um, to the point where in Japan, when you look at their basic emotions, shame is one of them, but it's not in the West, you know. Um even it doesn't
2: tech. mean we don't have it.
3: It's just it we, we don't talk about it. it. <laughs> it's just we don't talk about it and we can't see it. We don't have a face for it as they tend to have a face for it and, uh, and other things that we can map onto it and say, look, that means everybody has it. Well, it's not all in the face. That's a whole other argument. We'll go there another time. But, um, yeah, it's it has uh, the effect, for example, in, in Japan of driving them out of a period where they found themselves in the late 20th century. Um they hadn't progressed for years. They closed their borders. They hadn't done anything. They've decided they wanted to remain secret. And then two massive American warships turned up and said, um, you're trading. Just so you know, you're trading. Our cannons say so." Um, and the country was hit by a wave of shame, of we don't ever want to be like this again. In this situation again, where a foreign power that we haven't even heard of can turn up and tell us what we're going to do. Um, and a lot of what happened in Japan seems, seems to be driven by this haji, this kind of shame for the nation, shame for how you behave and how you're supposed to present yourself. Um, but it is a really powerful emotion on the idea of shaming, which is a big thing online at the moment, that you shouldn't shame certain groups uh, and sometimes you should shame other groups because they've done things is... Um, it's We are more a shame society in the West than we've been for a while, um, and I think it's just because we are finding more things wrong, if you like, and we're finding more things where we've got a moral view that you shouldn't actually go to somebody who is large like me and point at them and go, ah, you're fat, because, you know, they don't know. In my case, it's I like pie, but... It, there's all sorts of reasons why people can be out as they are. So don't shame them. So it's coming more and more into the focus now through online and stuff.
0: But that's interesting because yeah. e- equally it's about the speed, isn't it, that these emotions travel at the moment. Mm. So it's not necessarily about the change because I think, you know, a lot of people when they looking... Looking at the 1980s, looking at the way that things like Section 28, looking at the idea of the, uh, you know, kind of fabrication of loony left stories that existed. And, you know, some of the cartoons, there's an incredible cartoon, I think his name was Cummings, which is about all of the people who were behind Neil Kinnock. Mm. And there is this grotesque kind of Rastafarian image the lesbian, you know, really horrible, yeah. and it's that bit where you realise that 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 just those things were moving slower, but they were as potent. It was yeah. just that the vehicle then was however many newspapers there were at that time. Now the vehicle is social media, which means that the story is dead almost by the time the, you're able to print it because it's yeah. already gone through its its day of whatever it, you know the, the shaming mechanism, etc. So I mean, yeah. in terms of that balancing between. Because I, I think the positive side to social media is that it can increase empathy. If Yes. You, if you, and, and I think there's a lot of people I've seen who have realised that, oh, hang on a minute, that person... Re-, but we still also see the, the nastiness there as well. Yeah. But I think there's also that bit of being able to walk into other people's shoes does occur as well.
3: Yeah, it does. I mean, empathy is a, a great example of... I mean, shame and empathy have quite a relationship that, you know... Um, you feel shame and you also feel empathy for what the people around you are feeling. But empathy is, uh, the, it's whenever a technology comes along that speeds things up, you've, especially the transmission of emotions, things seem to happen. Um, when the printing press came out and was finally taken up, you saw a lot of emotional change in the world, not necessarily for the better at first. Uh, big ones, you know, um, new religion sprouting off and causing big wars and witch trials and all sorts of things like that. Um, and now again yeah it's we can share our emotions emotions are for the most part i mean i say shame is a social emotion but they all have a social element they're all there not only for us to survive and feel things but a level up for us to express that to other people it's a form of communication a form of language where we can say say to people without saying to people or by saying to people this is how i feel so of course the quicker you can do that the quicker this social element of it kicks in um in particular yeah in particular twitter where you can have emotions go around the world five thousand times before logic's put his boots on to go in a, to borrow a phrase, sort of um and uh yeah it's it's this is the thing the, the future is my my current obsession with emotions where it's where they're going um and twitter and Social media is obviously part of that because um, it's uh, it's it's a very oiled surface for emotions to travel on. I'm curious about the metaverse, if it happens and if anybody cares, um, and where that might lead when we can actually, we're sort of in a room with someone but not in a room with someone and we can express how we feel and we're still safe at home. But we're actually there, if you see what I mean. That's mine. There's system. no
2: jeopardy. You can yeah. get really angry at someone, and then yeah. you can just pull the plug, yeah. and you've vanished. Yeah. No jeopardy. I, I wanted
0: to just say that because of writing, you know, about emotions, it, it I'm fascinated because I find that certain historians can fall into a trap of believing that they are objectively reporting yeah. about. And, and it does seem that the, because I find it very interesting watching the different phases of history like there was a period of time where there were a, a lot of uh, kind of left wing historians and people like Christopher Hill and then it seems that by the 90s and beyond we had a a, a shift a, a, a reaction and suddenly there were a lot of historians who were saying that they were viewing the world objectively but oh, yeah. very much from, from a kind of right wing uh, window and we don't need to name names some of them have turned out to be right arseholes Um <laughs> So yeah. that that seems to be an interesting battle for a historian writing about emotions, where you yeah, you know, and and a very important thing as you were saying about you know yeah. reporting this, this yeah. this subjective experience of the historical events beyond the dates and the victor and who ran up that hill and who fell down the other one.
3: Yeah, it, historians of emotion are really really careful. Um, uh, I, I'd say it's very hard to be a historian of emotion and not at least have a uh, have a, a, a wink towards. Um, you know uh, well we're not the science side let's just say we're not we're not into the uh, Rankian sort of history history is a science and we must follow it and it's got rules it's got all that kind of stuff we are much more um, yeah, uh, careful because of course one of the problems was that scientific historians would go and find an emotion in the past that they recognised and said look all these people were frightened they're scared. It's just like us. And we go in and we look at the details and go, um, not quite. It just, I kind of don't, it's not quite the same, is it? And, you know, um, one of my areas is disgust. And if you look far, far enough back in disgust, you hear, find people talking about the revulsion they feel that's a bit like being tickled. And he says, hey, what, well, hey, that's, uh. Mm. So you, gotta, you can't just assume that disgust is disgust is disgust because they even describe how they felt in a slightly alien way and so yeah we are we all post modernist deep down historians of emotion i think uh we might pretend we're not <laughs> but you kind of have to be because everyone's everyone's emotional experience is valid and everyone's emotional experience is is their own narrative so by de facto we are post-modernists that's kind of how we have to be. Like the, it's it
2: like it, they also matter because they are used like emotions and i guess maybe I don't know whether talking about them and studying them makes it easier for people to use them. But you write about examples that actually may be really cross of emotions being used to, used to manipulate people, yeah. like knowing. Like I think mm. the women, women staying at home in the 50s or something, I just got cross because I thought that was awful. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. this, this deliberate manipulation is really pernicious, right? We have to be careful about that.
3: Oh yeah, uh, there's a lot of top-down emotional manipulation that has always gone on. I mean, emotional regimes generally are a top-down thing. They are. A, this is how we want you to behave, um, and please behave like that, or we will. We will assume you're wronging if you don't behave like that, and we'll look at you differently. Um, and yeah, the the Americans and the Russians went a bit, bit far in the fifties in the Cold War in trying to decide that's how people should feel, you know, this is, a, you should, we should have a love for the United States. It's like our love for our mothers. So if we make our children really love their mothers and then use the same language and same, same ideas, when we talk about the America, we end up with Donald Trump, you know, it's kind of eventually, you know, with America, America, America. Oh, okay, fine. You love your country. Good for you. Um, in Russia, you had the new Soviet man. It was a particular type of man that uh, you had to be very stoic or very proud, very strong and we yeah, we, we kind of again, we're seeing where that's ended up now Ugh. Um, but um, it happens all the time it, things like the witch trials are very much a top down thing as much as it was people who were scared because the world was a bit weird um, because they found a new continent and there was no trade going east and there were viruses and diseases and there were wars and religion had gone weird and there were at least two antichrists, probably more. Um, and, uh, but the actual witch trials themselves was quite often some local power who want, who used the idea of all this to, um, control and manipulate people and often sadly make money because you paid for your inquisitor. Um, it's all, yeah, it's, it's as old as politics is emotional manipulation probably older if there is an older i doubt there is but if there is yeah i mean um going to the witch trials again the people who did the accusing the people who thought they were witches um the main accusers were i mean there's a classic um uh argument for the people who asked the questions to witches during torture um and they would ask a very specific set of questions now of course what you have to remember is these poor women were hung their arms were backwards, they were being tortured, they couldn't really give a detailed answer. Most of them could barely not. And so, uh, Lyndall Roper, uh, who has written a few books on this subject, uh, points out that when a man asks a woman, did you go naked into the forest and dance around the fire? Did you have gay lesbian sex around the fire? It tells you a bit more about the inquisitor Mm -hmm. asking the question and what they're looking for, what's going on inside their heads. it does about the poor woman who's being tortured um because she has no way of really answering these questions or giving any details he didn't just say what are you doing last night he gave very specific questions about things that he for lack of a better word fantasized about them doing in the forest that night um and yeah and it was always a man of course you don't get female inquisitors ever it's always a man um again very much the the 50s with the boys this is important actually boys should be brought up to love their mothers and then love the country everybody who wrote about that and how you should do it with one exception margaret mead was a man um and margaret mead was kind of wheeled into it. look woman see so a mother agrees um
2: well i did i did notice <laughs> that reading your book basically yeah. and i you know in most books it, it would it would um it would sort of annoy me. But in your case, it actually makes a very important point that there are almost no women in your yeah. book, apart from the ones who are being tortured or told to get on with it and yeah. be in the kitchen and shut up. You know, there did women not have feelings in history?
3: Yeah, of course. They did. In fact, it, history will tell you that women had all the feelings. You know, they had all the feelings. They were the hysterics and they were the ones who went around being crazy, um which of course is absolute nonsense. Um, it's just again an example of we can control women if we portray them as emotional beings and just emotional beings because they're not reasonable and rational like us which again goes back to plato as usual and his idea that the reason was the highest form of the soul and that below that was sensitive emotional souls and below that was animal and physical things and that men had more reason than women did. Men were slightly higher on the great chain of being, because we were slightly closer to reason, therefore slightly closer to God, which again is obvious nonsense. But it's it kind of lingers for thousands of years and hasn't completely gone yet. Um, we can all dream of the day, hey? Eh? Um, but it's um it's throughout history, and it's hard to write history of emotion. There are some very good history of women's emotions, particularly people like uh, saints, female saints, Saint Agatha, who used to eat people's cancerous lumps and do lots of disgust. As a disgust person, I find her fascinating, but she's one of the few who we think wrote herself because even women's accounts back then were given to a man who was that, who was literate and he would write down what he wanted, probably, rather than what she said. Um, so she's very interesting. And there are there are somebody. It's, it's a hard field, like all of history, finding the women in there is more difficult than it ought to be. Um, we need It's not more
2: criticism f- of you yeah. at all. It's just a comment that it's so no, striking.
3: It's, it is. I mean, I, I wanted to find more women and that's why I, I found this fabulous African tw- she uh, queen. I thought she's got to be there. She's fantastic. Um, I'm, I think I might be meeting what, some of her grandchildren seem to talk about something for something else, but yeah. Um, uh, and anything I could, but it's um, it's it's dominated by men, like most of history is. Um, and uh, if if anyone out there wants to be a historian and you're, you're a female, please go be a feminist historian. Let's find the women, not the women worthies. We've heard enough about Queen Elizabeth. Thank you very much. Um, the real women, the women out there who are running the taverns and all those interesting things
0: Well, that must be very frustrating as a historian, though. I mean, I I think, for instance, as well about you know a lot of the things that have been increasingly through incredible amount of work discovered about indigenous cultures, which were not writing cultures, and therefore, you know, the the advantage of science is there are things that are left behind. There are Mm. the the disadvantage of where there have been human consciences, human consciousness that has not had a writing culture or their writing has been destroyed. Is how the hell do you try and piece that together?
3: Yeah, there's the whole field of history known as subaltern history. And there, what they do is try to find the people who aren't in the record. Um, And they do that by looking at what should be there, but isn't. So, you know, where where are the servants? Where are the slaves? They had them. Where are they? So how can we possibly find references to them, however tangentially, to try and build up the life of a roman slave who's very rarely talked about because they're not even thought about they just are there Um, and that includes certain ethnic groups and uh and other types of person and in some cultures the women in some cultures children even um, and just not there um and subaltern history i have to be quite honest they are they are the tough historians they really they really are the ones who go and spend a lot of time being very very careful and release a paper every four years because it takes them that long to get the details together to work out what's going on um and they're, they're much tougher than me i'll be honest um i can't spend that long in an archive they're cold and drafty and my tea gets runs out very quickly but um yeah they are it's it's it is a challenge for history and always has been a challenge for history that there are huge parts of humanity missing. Like I say, for for long enough, feminist history will look at Queen Elizabeth and the women worthies. And now it's, well, actually now is not fair. Now for about 20 years, it's now looked at uh, other women who are doing other things, who are running businesses or how, are, for example, they were the wives of a great master tradesman and they were their right-hand person and the, the husband has died and they've carried on the business and they end up undercutting the men because they cannot get the rank of master, but are as good and they're therefore cheaper. So you find these records of people going, I want his wife because she's really good and she's half as much as that bloke who's a master and things like that are now starting to appear. Um, and it's 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 uh, but it's so hard when, when history is written predominantly by men to find not men in it, because we do like to bang on about ourselves.
2: Men wanting to make a point, because one of the things you bring up is is the habit which we have in our mm. society of keeping feelings in check. That like, as yes. you said, the implication that if you've got your ranking that to hold your position at the top of the, the world order, however you phrased it, you have to be unemotional. That means that any emotions you do have, you pretend you don't have. Yes. We don't have you... them, we hide them away. And that has its own problems.
3: Yes, you have to pretend like you are stoic and that you are a purely rational being and that everything you do is based on feeling. Or well, generally, um, I notice there's something being topical for the moment so that this dates very quickly. I notice that whenever you see Putin in a meeting, he's at one end of a very long table. And I am convinced that's because he's terrified one of those guys at the end of the table might stab him. Yeah. I was
2: going to ask you about that though yeah. because this is the like this is this question of yes, and you know it is very current, but it's not is that the way the decisions that are being made mm. about this war are as if it's a logical thing? Yeah. And presumably, your advice to the whoever's deciding what to do about Ukraine would be well to think about the emotions.
3: Yeah, actually, uh, the president of Ukraine is pretty good at that. He's pretty good at stemming up the emotions and making it an emotional thing. And this is about how we how we love our country. We're not going to let them run over it. And, um, and Boris is quite an emotional bloke half the time. I think that's what lets him down. Well, no, that's not what lets him down. We'll not go there. But um, but yeah, it is. It's it's some weird deep-seated belief of Putin that he has an emotional belief that whatever it is, The Soviet Union needs to come back, that Ukraine's not a real country, something that he's terrified that Ukraine's going to attack Russia or whatever it is. But it's all, it's an emotional reason. He's not sat there and gone, if I take Ukraine, then, hmm, I'll have Ukraine. Because, you know, I'll have more. I mean, maybe he's decided he can put a pipeline of gas through it, but he's not worked out that no one will buy it. I don't know, (laughs) you know. War is almost always an emotional event. Um, most decisions are an emotional event at some level um, and um, yeah, it's strange. It, it's, it seems to me that Putin is frightened of his own shadow. Well, that's just my reading of it because yeah, he keeps everybody at table's length um, and tries to keep them away. Um, and, the trouble
0: yeah. is that in the end, isn't it, nearly always it becomes the um, tell me about your childhood Oh yeah, that's the, that, that's the, when you took the emotional history. Where I, I know the fourteen times I've not read it yet. There's an old article they did, which they just put up again about. It's just called Putin's other mother and some relationship yeah. he had with. And, and you know, and and I don't know about that that. But it's that that's the bit that becomes most distressing, doesn't it? Where you just go, oh man. It's oh, all yeah. so much. It's like when people were asking me recently about how do you stop people being flat earthers and you go, unfortunately, most of the story that leads to that is an emotional story. Yeah. And a lot of it is a story that involves shame or embarrassment or fear of expressing yourself. And all of those things build and build and build. And then they burst out in something which is utterly irrational.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um there was one flat earther recently who converted back to reality. I only have ever heard of one. He was known as Ranty, and he saw a post of a, a picture of Blackpool with the mountains behind it. And somebody just asked him, "How come Blackpool Tower is taller than the mountains behind it?" And he just went, "The Earth must be round." And it was a, quite a beautiful moment, actually, as, he, as his whole world just exploded around him because he couldn't look anywhere else. All the other Flat earthers have called it frac- refraction and angles. But yeah, he um, he actually does some interesting talks now about how he became a Flat Earth and how it was that. It was that he was looking for a community. It was very lonely. He was bullied as a kid. He found things very difficult. He needed now some kind of release from this he needed somehow to feel special like he knew something or had something um and once you get into it, it's hard to get out because everything once you get into the barrel get rolling in that barrel everything sounds convincing you just keep on moving you can't it's hard until someone yanks you out and shows you a picture of blackpool and goes um um it's hard to get out but he says he thinks he's different to the others at the back of his mind somewhere he was thinking this is all alone of nonsense isn't it whereas he doesn't think the others do even though we might want to believe that but yeah i think well, that's in scientology
0: to- that's that's come up a few times where yeah. some of the people who talk about the fact that by the time you start to get the real revelations of apparently what the story is, yeah. you've already invested maybe five, six, seven, maybe yeah. ten years into it, and you go, oh, well, I've got in this far, but this does seem... And then and then it's interesting when you see some of the people who've got quite high up and left Scientology. I don't yeah. think it's necessarily been for rational reasons. I think it's been because the person in charge, they've been alienated because they wanted that power. So, you know, there's lots of different things that kind of...
3: Yeah, yeah, Um
2: I was wondering, with the, the you know, you've written a history of emotion, uh, which sounds like a very sensible thing to do if you want to learn from history. Yeah. So, what are the lessons we should be learning from history when it comes to emotion?
3: Um, that... And how are
2: they going to help? How do we do things differently in the future? How do we break that cycle? We we're talking Ooh, about. We that second question's
3: a tougher one. I'll come to it in a moment. How do we break the cycle? Um, I think the main reason i want there's two reasons i wrote this book firstly nobody knows that there's a history of emotions and i do it for a living so i was like i want to tell people about this because i like getting paid um so you know um so i wrote it for that reason the other reason is that i think it's fascinating and that it the history of emotion more than as much as anything else shows you that emotions aren't a static thing, that there may be some affects deep down inside that all humans share because they keep us alive. Um, you know, we have lust because that helps us procreate. We have fear because it gets us away from the bear and so on. Um, but on top of that is a lot of baggage and culture and time changes that baggage right down to the words we use, and what those words are. Um, and so if there's anything, it's it's understand that the baggage you've got is maybe just baggage. And it's, it's, it's it is, again, comes from your childhood. A lot of it is development because that's where your understanding of culture comes from as well as how you, you're supposed to behave and other things. And you need to kind of, I don't know, sometimes take a step back and think, what's this feeling actually? Without being a total stoic and going, does my feeling help me in society? No, then I shall reject it. I don't think we can actually do that. But understanding that even emotions themselves, like say, is a box in which we put a group of feelings. And we said, those feelings don't go in this box. They go over there. And these feelings, they can go in the box because they're over here. And nobody's quite sure why they go in the box because there's hundreds of definitions of emotion. Um, and just, you know, realize that emotions are fluid at a certain level. Now, how that can help us get out of being overly emotional and doing things like invading a sovereign country, I don't know. Um, Damn. Yeah. (laughs) One thing I do know is that our emotional landscape is narrowing with this technology because uh, an example from the end of the book that I'm looking at more at the moment is how emoticons are changing from being... Culturally different to not being culturally different. I have this theory, by the way, that the reason we in the West hate masks and the people in the East are fine with them is because they are much more expressive with their eyes and we're much more expressive with our mouths. So we covered up all our feelings and they didn't. So we saw these freaky automatons and a lot of people went, Oh, no, can't have that. And in Japan and China, they went, What? Yeah, I can still smile. I can still be angry. I I do and if you look at emoticons that's an example of that that, um the old japanese ones the difference between happiness and sadness and stuff is all in the eyes and the mouth stays kind of the same and in the west it's the opposite way around it's all in the mouth and the eyes mostly stay the same but they are merging now is that a good thing that emotions seem to be merging there's things like surveillance where they can track your emotions and see if you you're expressing the right emotions uh, and if you're not then like i said earlier if you're not if they're wrong emotions for the regime then you might be wrong even if you're not so we'll all learn to behave the same way isn't that nice yay um emotionally so that we don't get carted off in an airport because someone thinks we look a bit stressed in an airport which by the way has happened with this stuff um, they, they've they trained people to monitor people's expressions. And if they look like they're a bit stressed or a bit perturbed, they take them to one side to interrogate them and make sure they aren't terrorists. They forgot they were, you know, in an airport. So there were a lot of lawsuits came out of that. Um, I don't know. I am I could rant on about how I'm worried about where emotions are going in the future. Um, how long you got? Yeah, but I will
0: What's been the most, in in terms of when you were growing up, what what, what have been the uh, historical books, the non-fiction books, all the novels in fact, which have been the most revelatory books for you in terms of changing your attitude to the possibilities of human beings or yourself?
3: non fiction books i'm just trying to all think novels you're allowed
0: you're allowed just no. th- th- those those books that are kind of you know have been as as i think you know many people will find this book kind yeah. of revelatory in terms of the ideas it's introducing uh them to.
3: well I, I will tell everybody from the rooftops that douglas adams was the greatest philosopher that ever lived so there's that um he yeah, yeah he taught me a lot uh every single version although maybe not the middle of the movie other than that every single version is uh i think uh has something to say um as a non-fiction i used to be one of these encyclopedia kids that have the book of comparisons which was a classic and those black books with a different and they say volcanoes and the other one say planets and, and i think every time i read one of those i was amazed by something um i'm one of the i also read the brief history of time and thought that was that was one of those oh that's interesting I, the, because I, that, that was in a period when i was doing tarot cards and things i was all spiritual and actually that had more effect on me than anything else it made me think angle and that's not how planets work you know sort of, what's going on here um that's but that's a classic is there anything really weird that i read as a kid i'm sure there is there's quite a few odd ones I'm just trying to remember, uh, other than the Douglas Adams and the Dirk Gentlys, which I think are even more important when we're talking about emotions. Um, I think they're it. I think those weird encyclopedias I used to collect, every single one of them would make me go, wow. Uh, And they're they're probably all wrong now because this is the 80s we're talking about. So they've got dinosaurs in them without feathers. So that's a problem. Um, but they were great. I I always read the that's the that beautiful
0: kind of thing, thing about so, those books yeah, is the progress yes. of knowledge and the fact. Yes. Because that... Helen, what got you out of reading tarot cards?
2: I have to confess to never having had a tarot card face. <laughs> I did read I've got a brief history of time. Actually somewhere here, I've, I still got have somewhere.
0: I've, 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 I've got one which was done, uh, which is uh, uh, the tarot cards, which is only kind of black historical figures. It's used for that as well, right. which is a really interesting I, I genuinely interesting. don't
2: even know what tarot cards look like. I wouldn't know where to start. You I, I, I... You've
0: never seen Live and Let Die? Yes. <laughs> Oh, no, it's a film. Of course you haven't. No. I'm not saying are you, you not should sure, watch Robin, it, you by the way.
2: It starts with, have you seen? The answer is no. I'm really and also,
0: sure. I'm not going to try and persuade you to watch James Bond films because there are far better things you can do with your time as far as I'm concerned.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my tarot cards are the ones designed by Alistair Crowley. So I was really dark. Uh, they're beautiful. They're extraordinary artwork on them. But yeah, Alistair Crowley. So, oh, dear. I was, I was that. that. I was that 19-year-old. Bit and, and he's
0: now a Weatherspoon's pub as far, I think it's a Weatherspoon's, which is uh, down oh, yes. down it, d- it down is. in Hastings, yeah. d- d- just it... near the station. The the Alistair Crowley is a, is a thing at Weatherspoon's. Yes, Everything and again the Peter Cushing is pub. a Weatherspoon's as well, which breaks my heart. Yeah, the, 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 the mar- old cinema in in Whitstable, which was where Peter Cushing used to go and watch movies, yeah. um, is now a
3: Weatherspoon's pub. The Marquee is a Weatherspoon's, and that really. Ugh
2: well i'm sure there's a special word coming along for the emotion that happens when you discover that your that weatherspoons has taken over your favorite pub Um,
3: (laughs) oh i'm feeling very hendrix i think that's the emotion i want to burn something on where the stage was that's that's
0: the um uh, thank you so much for for joining us sorry i was late but as it's, it's the right? problem with physicists when they uh well as you know helen because you know once you someone... about? i was on time no, no no but not you but you know the physicists i'm talking about you're you're <laughs> i think a far more pragmatic physicist dealing with the information paradox and trying uh, to get that finished by midday turned out to be far more problematic than we imagined um and uh and the book is out now isn't it
3: It is. It is out now in in the UK and lots of other places. It came out in India yesterday, which surprised me. I didn't even know it was coming out in India. So that's nice. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah
0: thank you so much thank you very much to our producer Trent Burton thank you very much yes, to, thanks, for Helen, to Helen Chersky and in particular because of you know, the fact that I was late as well and uh, please do support us via uh, Patreon go to Cosmic Shambles uh, go, go, go in fact to patreon.com slash Shambles, uh, and you'll find out how to support us or if you want to do the bigger kind of version as well of all the Cosmic Shambles stuff uh, you can go to patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles that's it bye bye bye
1: bye Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and rate five stars on Apple Podcasts. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe and get extended episodes and lots of other stuff. Back next week with another new episode, of course. Until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now.
0: Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.